Eat Sleep Raise podcast. Our special guest today is Victor Alvarez, founder and owner of Induction Performance, owner of Bradenton Motorsports Park, and drag racing event promoter. Yep, that's me. <laughs> Co-owner of Induction. I got to give my partner his credit. You know? Okay. New York native who actually just flew in a couple hours ago from Florida. Thank yep. you for joining us tonight. You're clearly a contributor in the drag racing industry, more so in the past 10 years. I mean, I grew up in drag racing, but yeah, I've been contributing to the sport since I would say like 2013. From organizing, promoting events at your own racetrack to owning a performance shop that modifies the race cars. Are there any other businesses that you're involved in that I didn't touch on no, that you want to mention? Those are the only ones that I would feel are worth mentioning. Okay. I'm sure there's other businesses also outside of motorsports. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to get into other things too, because unfortunately I also really enjoy racing. So you can never have too many revenue streams. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of like people say, don't keep all your eggs in one basket. You kind of like kept them all in one basket in motorsports, kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's good that you were able to like split up your, you know, it's not just one thing. You know, you have the shop, you yeah. have, you know, the track, the, the racetrack. I feel like that's kind of also always been uh, giving me like an upper hand in a lot of ways. Because when I became a race promoter, and I wanted to go to a, a business to get a sponsor. I knew both sides of it. Like I know what I want if I'm the sponsor and I know what I want as the event promoter. So I, I feel like I've been in every seat, you know, so to speak. And I, I think it's given me a little bit of an upper hand. Let's take it all the way back here. Cause you said you grew up around racing. Yeah. Born and raised in New York, eventually moved to Florida. So let's let's step it back. Um, how how so did you get into racing? And could you take us through the timeline of racing in New York to where you are today in Florida? Yeah. So growing up, my dad and my uncle had a performance shop. Um, did a lot of Supras, and I was a nerd when it came to the car stuff. Like what part of New York? So my dad had a shop in Long Island Valley Stream. Um, I used to, I grew up going to Long Island Dragway. English Town, Echo, Maple Grove, like the shop was imports and domestics or so it started as like general repair. And then my dad had a Supra and it was fast. Which boy, what he had an 89 Supra MK. What MK3, is that? MK3. MK3 yeah. Cool. So at the time he had a really fast car and you know how like back then it was different. We didn't have social media. So like if you went out to the street races and your car was fast or you beat somebody, it got talked about and like that just kind of turned into a thing. So, and then so People were like, hey, man, will you work on my Supra? And right. It just turned into this thing where him and my uncle would build Supras. So I know back, not to cut you off, but I know back then, um, you know, like you said, you, if you if you had a fast car, people knew you. Yeah. And usually you had a nickname or like some some type of uh, significant that like people could identify like, yo, that's Turbo Mike or that's yeah, such yeah, and such. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. What was your dad's nickname? My dad, my dad always just went by Fernando, but everybody knew that red Supra. Like that's Fernando, Fernando with the red Supra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was it, that red Supra. Everybody knew it. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, that car was, that car was really fast in its time, you know? Um, and there what year is this? This is man. So my dad's car probably was like doing, you know, doing work on the street, like really fast and starting to go to the track, probably like 99 to, I moved out of Florida 05, so like 99 to like 03, 04. Okay. Um, so that's what got me into it. And then like 
I didn't have any friends that were my age. All my friends were my dad's friends. So I was either at his shop, one of his friends' shop, a race, or like hoping they would take me somewhere to like go work on a car, like anything You're I trying could to tag do, along. I was just tagging along. Yeah, like I would go to my dad's shop. How and, old were you at this age? So, man, how old am I? I'm 33 now. I'll be 34 in November. So, man, I'm in, I'm 10 to 15 years old was probably when I like really, really got into it. I mean, it's funny, but like when I was in like seventh grade, I literally downloaded a wholesale application for a big like parts distributor at the time, like printed it, brought it to my dad's shop and made him fill it out with me. And like, I was selling parts. Like I was like anything that I could do. I just wanted to be part in of the it. scene in the mix. Like, you know, Drag racing was great back then. Import drag racing, especially. Yeah, that was like during the height of it. That yeah, like so my dad, my dad was good friends with Craig Paisley. Like I, when I tell you, I was hanging out with people. I was hanging out around like Craig All Paisley. The big dogs. Yeah, like Vinny uh, Ten. Vinny Ten, my dad's friend that passed away, Bert, that had uh, a bunch of uh, like eclipses and Eagle Talents. They had a shop in Long Island Pro Speed. Um, Ricky Bailey, top level performance. Like I grew up around like the height of the import scene, at least in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to be a part of it any way I could, like, at all. And then um, <clears throat> in 05, we moved to Florida. And I was still in high school. I was, I was a junior in high school. So closed up shop in New York. Closed up shop, moved to, moved to New York or moved to Florida. My dad got another general repair shop. And he didn't really, he, he was kind of getting out of the, you know, the car stuff. Not that he, I mean, he still has a car, like he's still into it. You're always into it, right? But he wanted to just focus on his business. And he had a Supra and started off like, Pop, let me take the car and do whatever, you know? So and I this is still it. the same Supra? So this is a different Supra, but an older one still. Okay. So I would like take his car and go to Bradenton Motorsports Park when I was like, 17 years old because so, you could drive early so a year perk, earlier down there the right perk of moving to florida the only thing that i was excited about was that i could get my permit as soon as i got there which yeah. here i couldn't yeah i, I think, think, that, I, I think yeah. that up here is like 17 down there it's like 15, 15 yeah. yeah so like the day that i got to florida the only business that i needed to handle Hit was the dmv right my permit. Yeah. <laughs> oh that's dope yeah i didn't know that because in jersey it's 16 so yeah so you had your full license at 16 then we're not going to talk about that, but oh, okay. I could have. <laughs> he was <laughs> driving. Well, no, let's you talk about it. I was driving. You were operating a vehicle. No, like, so, all right. So the truth is that even when I was like 14, I was street tuning cars, like myself. And we're talking about why you didn't get your license at 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I had been driving for so long that I kind of just like. Like, I'm good. I don't need that, right? And then you get pulled over with your permit. And you don't even have somebody else in the car with you, and it just it makes things a little bit more difficult. Mm. I, didn't, I, I don't think I've ever told anybody this, but I probably didn't actually have a license until I was like 21. No way, <laughs> because you they wouldn't let you get one, or just because you like, never so felt like, like getting one. Well, no, I never that. felt like getting one, and then anytime I'm like, I'm gonna go get my license, I'd get pulled over for like the stupidest thing. And then your shit, their date just and keep being push pushed back. back. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Dang, that's so crazy. I would, so when we were in Florida, I would take my dad's car and I'd go to the track or I'd go to like, you know, they used to have the Tampa super meet, which was pretty cool in, in Florida area. Like that was actually a really good super meet. 
um, I would go to these things and I would dabble and I would just get this like this fire. Man, I want to I want to do something and started, you know, going to the street races and stuff like that. And then started meeting people and started working on Supras again. So you went from Long Island to Tampa. Yep. And around 17 is when you started working on Supras. Uh, I mean, I had already been working on Supras when I lived here. Like literally when I was 14, back then cars would have like SAFCs and VPCs and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I would like, you, would, go, you were I, tuning I would, them knobs. I would tune them. Like I would, like wow. I would, I was, I would go to school. And like when you're supposed to be doing other stuff, when you're, you know, they you got you the magazine in the middle computer. of your book. Not even how you get your time <laughs> on the computer. I would be on like HKS's website, like wow. learning what VPC stood for and like what it did and what all the knobs did and learning like all, like how to set up a boost controller. Like I was nerding out. Well, shout out to whoever let you touch their car. Oh, there were some brave souls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At 14, like, uh, Vic's going to tune your car. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't even know how I got into this stuff. But like, I used to go to, I mean, I used to go to TNR racing and I would spend my like Friday night and Saturday night there dyno tuning cars because I was like the, one of the only dinos around back then. Like there was, you know, it was DRT, TNR. There weren't a lot of dinos no. in, in yeah. New York, you know? I need to see pictures of this. I have, I have seen a 15 year old Vic. Yeah. Tuna and a Subaru. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, I was very into it. And when I moved down there, um, the same kind of thing happened where I'd go, to, but it was me. I'd go to the street races. I would race. And then somebody would be like, hey, man, will you work on my car? And next thing you know, we were working on Supers again. And how was, how was the scene down in Florida compared to New York? It was very different, but very cool. So like in New York, most of the time that we would go to the street races and it was still kind of probably like this, everybody would race from a stop, like with a stop with a flag man. Yeah. Like, everybody gambled. Like there was, I never went to a street race that was free unless it was like friends. Like yeah. dad would race one of his friends. There was no such thing as a No, no, this is for something. Yeah. So when I went down there, like everybody's racing from a roll and I'm like, how do you watch this? Like, like <laughs> what do we do? You know what I mean? And gambling, at least in the import scene, was like not a thing. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't as competitive, but there were a lot of cars. Like the scene was good. The scene, like you'd go out on a Saturday night and you could drive around and see tons of beautiful cars all over the place. And you'd line up with somebody on the highway and do a pool, or whatever. But it was, it was different. The cars were very similar, right? Um, but it was different, like style of racing. Yeah, different, like a different kind of lifestyle. You know what I mean? Um, but it was cool. Here, when I, when I left New York, it was all about like Supras, um, Civics, you know, Turbo Civics. I was like the time where Turbo Civics were really starting to take off. Um, eclipses were really fast. They were all wheel drive. Mm -hmm. You'd have like Cyclones and Typhoons and like, you know, some of the domestic stuff, Mustangs. When I went down there, I remember the first time I saw a car, a Nissan 240 with a SR20. And I was like, this thing's turbo? Like what? But that back then, or back in that time in that the was South, that was a big thing because everybody was importing a lot of engines there and they were doing a lot of engine swaps. So like one JZs and SR twenties. Like that's the first time I started seeing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What age were you when you started induction performance? Cause I'm guessing when you were younger, you were doing it at your dad shop. Yeah. So from 07 to like 2009, I worked with my dad. Um, and like 2009 or 10, we had two uh, franchise stores, uh, Meineke mufflers, you know, back in the day, they used to be a thing too. And still is. Yeah, it still is, I guess, up here. Down there, not as much. Oh, it died down. Yeah, not as much, but we had those. And like, I still, like, I was doing it because that's what we were doing, you know what I mean? And I just wanted to work with my dad. Like, my whole life, 
I idolized my dad. I want, you know, I wanted to do what my dad was doing, but it would turn into that every night I would close the shop. It's version two. And yeah. And then we would start working on Supras. And so I would work until six on, you know, doing breaks and mufflers and whatever you needed to do. And then from that time till whenever you got really tired. Yeah. You're <laughs> working work on, other on stuff. Supras, work on our own cars, work on other people's cars, whatever. Um, 2000, like probably, yeah, like 2009, I met my business partner, Alpha. He comes to New York all the time, still on Tunes Cars. He's still Tunes. Yeah, he's one of the greatest to ever do it, in my opinion. Um, and it kind of worked out where it was like, he was tuning a lot of cars in the Tampa area, and I was working a lot of cars in the Tampa area. So we, at one point, there was like a little small rivalry, and then it turned into he needed a good place to send his customers. Because, you know, you're tuning a car, you have a problem on the dyno, Go, see, trying to work go on see this guy get it fixed. So probably six months of like literally us working together every single day, me working on his customers' cars, then I go to the dyno with him, make sure they were good, et cetera. One day we were driving, I'm like, why don't we just open a shop? Like, you know? So 2011, March 2011, we started induction performance officially. And how old were you at that age? Or at that 2011, time? 2011. That's what, 12 years ago? So I was 21. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So you just got your license. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were going, we were opening a business. I had to do it. <laughs> what was the biggest challenge of starting a shop at 21? Man, you know, I, I, I think I definitely had it easier than a lot of people. And I'm okay with admitting that um, because I had been around it for so long. And I was never like, I don't want to say I wasn't a spoiled kid and I wasn't like given things, but I was given tons of opportunity from being with my dad and my mom, my mom, my dad, like if I ever wanted to do something, they would never tell me that I couldn't do it. Or like they, there was no hesitation. Like, yeah, you should do it. And they would push me and they would, you know, help me do it um, in any way that they could, whether it was just support or whatever. Um, so I had it pretty easy. Truthfully, um, we had the Meineke shop, and two bays, there was two bays next to it. They used to tint windows and those people ended up moving out. So you took that over. And my dad hooked me up with the landlord, talked to him for us. And like, he gave us a killer deal. We moved in there. We bought our first dyno, which we still have, Dino Jet. <laughs> Shout out to Dino Jet. That thing's a champ. Still works. <laughs> He's still killing it. But uh, we had it, we had it, you know, easier than I think most people would. Alpha had been doing cars for a long time at that point too. Um, I was 21. I was living with my parents, you know, like that to me, that, that helped me that's a lot. A, that's a know? bonus. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, it was challenging, but I had been around it for so long and I had so many good people that I could call and lean on and like talk to. And I had learned so much and I had seen so much. I had it easier than probably a lot of people did. I think that also helped too. Like, you know, you've been in the business, it, even though you're a performance shop now, you guys still have a background of running operations. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I mean, I, I, I tell people all the time, they're like, man, you're so young and like, whatever, like, I guess I'm young and, you know, to most people, like they look at me like, oh, you know, you're only 33, you're doing all this. But to me, I've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like legitimately, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been doing this a long time. I've been like, I've been through it and I've learned a lot and I've learned a lot the hard way. I've had some, you know, some stuff that I had to, I'm stubborn. I had to learn about learning on my own, but I had it easier than a lot of people just because I was, I was just, man. You're around it. I was raised around some like some like some hitters man some dudes that like were serious about this racing stuff and it it motivated me and it also i learned a lot and i had a cheat sheet 
Well, let's talk about that. Who would you say, you know, you said you're raised around some, you know, big shots in the industry or in racing. Mm -hmm. Who would you credit the most and why? Well, my dad for sure, but that's not fair. So <laughs> aside from my dad, two you already gave him his flowers. Yeah, 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 two people aside from my dad would be, uh, rest in peace, his friend Bert. I always idolized him just because this dude was like, this dude was a problem on the street. Like back then it was all about street racing. Mm -hmm. So you could go to the track and run whatever. It didn't matter. This dude on the street, he was just one of those guys that if you, ha you could have the fastest, you think you have the fastest car or what whatever, if this dude is next to you, you're worried. He could have a slower car and you know it. You could like leave the track. He went 12s, you went 11s, and you're shook. And I really like that. And I love, so I'm a very competitive person. So I love the competitive side of it. So I would say him and Craig Paisley. Um, watching Paisley come up from his first shop in Hempstead and have the big sponsors of like HKS and TRD and like, really moving parts in New York at this time. Yeah, that was, a, that that was time, a big thing. He was the guy that was moving parts like for real in New York. You know what I mean? Um, if you needed something, HKS or like any of the JDM stuff that was hard to get and like that everybody was using, he was, he was the guy. Yeah. If you didn't get it from him, the guy you got it from got, got it, from it from him. him. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I got to see all of it. I got to see the guys in the street that were like racing every night for you know, whatever money they could put together and like competitively. And then I got to see guys like Paisley that would have the huge 18 wheeler trailer with the TRD wrap in the car and like go, we would go to Maple Grove or we'd go to English town and I'd be right there with them. Um, and not just, I, I got to give uh, my boy Rashim his flowers too. And the guy that worked for Paisley, super humble, super soft-spoken guy, Rashim, him and my dad were friends and Paisley, they were all real tight. And this dude was a wizard, man. This guy was the man, but he would, always always take the time to like explain things to me and teach me things because i don't know if he just thought that i would eventually do something with it but he always showed me love was that, that was that paisley's crew chief yep it was right yeah, yeah i remember him. that dude was the man yeah yeah so shout out to him too so of those three guys i mean other than being around them what would you say was so inspirational that you were able to take away from them man i think just like i think anybody who is into the, the racing side of, you know, the motorsports scene. I think it's the competitiveness, man. Like seeing what these guys were willing to do and what they would do to win a race and seeing like the excitement and the celebrations when you would win a race and when you would do well. And then also, I mean, for me, seeing how people viewed that, right? So like back then, Eddie Bello, Vinny Ten, uh, Lisa Kubo, uh, Craig Paisley, like people talked about these people, like they were like they were legends. Yeah, they, I mean they they, they were, are. they, they still were. are. But even at day. that time, oh, at that time, like the way that people would talk about them, like when you're a kid, I want to be that dude. You know what I mean? Like I want to if I'm gonna do something, I want to do it to the best of my capability. I've always been that way. I've always been competitive. Even like if if I play a sport and I'm not good at that sport. I'm still going out there to play to win. Like, that's just how I am. So I think seeing how it's received and seeing like the accolades that you get and just like, it's a respect thing. But people, I, I think drag racing is a ego driven sport. Oh, absolutely. So it's about that really at the end of the day, if we're being real. So this is, I guess, 
it's uh it's hard to pin down because you've been working on supers for so long. <laughs> yeah. My original question was how many supers has induction performance worked on? But let me make it a little bit more broader. How many supers have you personally worked on? Man. Well, I'm very fortunate that now I don't really work on the cars myself, you know. Obviously, we're like the way I look at it, we're a brand. So like now when you bring your car to induction performance, you bring your car there for our expertise. We have a shop full of like some just badass dudes. So like I don't physically go out there and work on the cars, but I'll say like this is the setup we need to do and all that. So I'll still count that. Yeah. I've probably touched in some way or another. Man, it's got to be like it's over 500 Supra. Wow. It has to be. Wow. Like, I mean. When I lived in New York and I, I moved out of here when I was like 15, I had probably already worked on like hundreds of Supers. So now, fi 500, do you think anyone else has worked on more Supers than you have? Uh, probably. They're, they're, there's guys that have been doing it for a long time. Like, I mean, you know, like Titan Motorsports, they've been working on Supers for a long time. I would say like at this point, they probably do more parts and we probably work on more cars than they do. You know, whatever. Maybe it evens out or whatever. But there's guys who've been doing it a long time. But I guess if it's you take crazy. into effect, or if you take into account, we've been working. We worked on like I started, so that was another thing. Like when I started working on Supras, I worked on the older Supras. I worked on '89, like the Mark III Supras with seven M's and trunk ass seven M motors and all <laughs> that. Like when you worked on those, you would tell people you worked on Supras, and then they would be like, "Oh, you work on Mark Threes." Yeah, and like that was that was a thing. And like right before we moved out of New York is when we started working on the 2J stuff. And like, I remember clear as day, like when I was like 14 years old, removing my first 2JZ from a Mark IV Supra and like me and my dad and my uncle building it and putting it back in the car. Like, I remember the whole process clear as day. I remember the car, the owner of the car, like I, that was like a, that was a hurdle to get to that point. Cause literally like you, I would tell people, and I knew, I knew everything I needed to know. There was differences, whatever, the 2J is easier, right? But that was the thing. Like you were just people have the stigma. Like oh yeah, you like work oh, on the old you shit. work on those. <laughs> Not because like I mean, Supras have always been like a very legendary car. Yeah. If you had a Mark IV Supra, and you pulled up to our shop and we had twenty Mark III Supras, and not one Mark IV in sight, you're gonna be like, mm, mm, I don't know. know what I mean? yeah, yeah. Like, which is fair. I respect it. But we had just started to like really start working on the Mark IV Supras when we moved, but. Man, we I I started on those and worked on hundreds of those and worked on hundreds of the Mark IVs. That's crazy. Now, do you think I think it's pretty funny too that some of the bigger super shops are all in Florida? Yeah, it's funny that that's the it case. Kind of like how it worked out. I don't think it was always like that. I think, man, back in the day, like there's definitely been the Northeast has changed a lot. I don't live up here, but I, I have a lot of friends up here and whatever, and I pay attention as much as I can and I try to be as involved with the sport as possible. Losing Long Island Dragway, losing um, English Town, uh, you know, Echo was really quiet for a while. That stuff had a huge effect on, on the sport, you know? Uh, like, you have to wonder, would guys like Vinny Ten still be working on Supras if there were racetracks? Would Paisley have stayed in New York working on Supras? Or You know what I mean? Like, you have to wonder. Because at the time, in my opinion, Florida was nowhere near what the Northeast was doing. Um, and then, like, probably, what, like, 
05, 06, Titan started doing stuff. And you had like Battleground Performance mm-hmm. one in Georgia and stuff. But they, they, I mean, New York used to run it. It held its own for a long time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What is the fastest Super you've ever worked on? Um, to date, the fastest car that we've built would be Booger. Um, on the back of my shirt. Uh, really good friend of ours. Really good friend of ours. Uh, the car actually came out of Texas. Powerhouse Racing originally built the car for another friend of ours, Will Dugget, uh, Dugas. And car was really cool came up for sale customer of ours was like man i'd like to buy that car it's cool so it's one of those things it always seems like buying a built race car already built is like the easier way to do it and the car was built well don't get me wrong but at this point we've completely like i think the front wheels are the only things we haven't changed on the car we've rebuilt the car um you actually uh, drove that car yeah, at I, world I, cup yeah right? I, I drove that car at world cup i drove the car tx2 cat i've been the one since he's bought it, I've been the one who's raced it. Oh. Um, but yeah, we've like completely rebuilt that car. We've learned a lot with that car. Um, you know, like you can work on these cars, these 2J engines for a really long time. And when you get to a certain point, if you want to keep on going, you have to learn and learn and learn. Like you always have to be willing to learn and learn to, and willing to like keep pushing and step out of your comfort zone. And we learned a lot with that car. Uh, it's a pretty heavy car. It's, you know, like an uncut stock chassis car okay and it went six eight at 210 tx2k nice. like two years ago um world cup finals we put a smaller turbo on it to run street fighter and ran like 712 or something like that with it so it's a pretty cool car uh working on more of like a real race car now like a lightweight supra that'll have like a three-quarter chassis type build so like a lightweight ford nine inch like solid axle four link fat ass car we're hoping to to make that one pretty fast. This is a new shop car. Yeah. So I noticed that the other day on on social media you posted you're gonna sell the chassis, the old Paisley chassis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I know that for some time you're gonna redo that car. Yep. So what changed? So I had to pay homage to the man, right? And like to me that car. I think we all have like a car. I still have that car. I have the poster of the car doing the, doing doing the wheelie, wheelie yeah, yeah, yeah. in my parents' garage still. I'll, I'll give you any money you want in the world for that. <laughs> <laughs> but we all have, in my opinion, that one car that was like the turning point for like, all right, like I'm officially obsessed with cars or drag racing, whatever. That car was it for me. Um, and then you bought it. So it became, it became available. And what's crazy is the car didn't look anything like it. The car, I had asked a bunch of times, like, man, what happened to this car? What happened to this car? What happened to this car? Car comes up for sale and it's like a, you know, a roller. it's like a, yeah, it's a roller. It's silver. It's kind of beat if we're being real. Yeah. Um, like paint and stuff, whatever. And it's back half and it has wheelie bars. I'm like, man, is that the car? So I start calling around and like, yeah, that's the car. Oh shit. So I bought it. Um, after we got the car, we realized that to update that chassis to like make it like how we want it. We weren't going to use anything from that car. So I was like, why cut up this car when we could just cut up our existing car? So we sold that car. We had our copper Supra um, and we cut that one up and that one's going to be the. Oh, so you guys are, you already sold that car. That car got sold. Um, I think actually the guy who bought it lives in Jersey. Oh shit. I don't know what he's doing with it. Uh, We're going to build our, Original Supra, but it's going to be wrapped with the, the old, Paisley the wrap. Yeah, no, yeah, that's dope. Yeah. 
That's dope. So moving forward now, after all these years of working on um, Supras, you know, recently you stepped into the sport front category and it seems like you're having a lot of fun with it. You've already, you're on your second, you know, car now. Yeah. Like, how do you compare that to like the rear wheel drive stuff? Man. And you're, we're talking, for those that don't know, talking Toyota Supra's rear wheel drive into Honda Civic yeah. front wheel drive. Yeah. So I, I, <laughs> I don't have like a really good answer for this. <laughs> like what, what made you do so, the jump? So grow, growing up, front wheel drive was just like, like for lack of a better term, it was stupid. Like, if you had a rear wheel drive car, you made fun of a guy that had front wheel drive. Always, like, I was like, what is this guy doing? You know. Well, something that kind of now sticks out in my memory is my I I don't think I ever really watched my dad lose many races, maybe like one or two. But growing up, the one car that I ever watched beat my dad's car was a green hatchback Civic. From, from from New York? From New York. I think it was a car that came came out of DRT. Okay. This is like back in the day. So it was probably an EG? Yep. At yep. the time? It was a green EG and it was a turbo car and it was silly. It was fast. And like, I couldn't believe it. I still had no interest in those cars at all. When I started promoting and doing races, you know, like Sport Front, extreme front whatever you want to call it that's like the only import sport compact class that's still competitive competitive and around you know and like has a distinguished rule set and has like cars that are dedicated to that it's the only one so 2014 fl2k 14 i did a front wheel drive class it was okay it wasn't a ton of cars and i think i did it again in like 18 that's when i really got into it and the car that caught my eye, and it wasn't just the car. I, truthfully, it was more the driver, was Goldie. Driven by my boy Rob Maps, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Um, one of the best to ever do in a front-wheel drive car. Don't even try to tell me otherwise. And he had that same thing that I was talking about. It didn't matter. You could have a car that was three-tenths faster than him. If that man was in the lane next to you, Your word. you were scared. You were like, yo, I have to, I have to, I I gotta have cover to him. do something. Yeah. I have to like, I have to beat this man. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter what car I'm in. I have to beat this dude. And he had that about him and he wore it well. Like, he wasn't shy about it. Like, he would let you know, I'm going to get in this car and it's going to be a problem for you. And I love that about him. And he really caught my eye and that car caught my eye. And then I bought my FL2K car. And part of the reason I bought that car, it was a car from the Brain 2 camp, and he drove the Clutchmaster's car, Goldie. I wanted to race, I wanted to race a K-Series, I knew that, because I just liked those engines more, newer technology. I had interest in those engines. And I wanted to race with mainly maps. And right off the jump, him, Angel, Rob, they all took me under their wing, Norris. They all showed me a lot of love. I did my first front-wheel drive burnout my entire life, Maple Grove, like two years ago. Um, and I was hooked because growing up, the style of racing you would do back then, everything had a clutch. Mm -hmm. You had to shift everything. Like It was more driver-oriented than it is now. And that's not a shot at anybody, but that's just what it is. All the cars now. Technology. Yeah, yeah. dual clutch technology, you know, like it's different. 
So kind of going back to that, and like when I first started racing Supras, same thing. Was, there were manual transmission cars and like a lot of driving that went into it. I wanted something that I had to drive and I wanted something that was a challenge, something that I hadn't done yet. And that class just really impressed me. Um, we did it at the reunion, mm-hmm. which was during COVID, and I was hooked. So I bought that car, did that, um, learned a lot. And I loved that car, um, but I didn't feel like I had a lot of time at the time to run it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I overheard there was like a stipulation like to you buying that car, right? Like you had to run a certain number or something like that. Um, there might be some truth to that. That sounds like something I would say, but I don't, I don't remember the details. I don't remember either. Everyone would just tell me, yo, Vic bought this car. Vic is like, no, nah, that's cap. You know, no, no that, that but it has to run sounds like something X I would amount say. of time. Like it had yeah, to run yeah, a number. Oh no, yeah. That's, that's, that checks out. <laughs> Valid. That, car, that car ran good. Like, no, it did. I, I mean, only ran. Did so again, I did my first burnout in that car, in a front wheel drive car ever at Import Revival. In, in Maple Grove, I missed Pan Am's. And then the next time I think I ran it was FL2K. And I went 8-2, which at the time was very good for that class. Mm-hmm. And then F- after FL2K went to World Cup Finals, ran an 8-13 with a hangover. That was that was a fun time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ran an 8-13, which like at you that almost time, missed the, You almost missed the um getting into the car. Man, you ain't supposed to be talking about this. <laughs> hey, listen, man. You enjoyed yourself, right? I did, I listen, did. Listen, that's all good. Uh, I ran an 8-13, which at the time was like the third or fourth fastest K-Series car. Um, and I was in, and like, again, it was just It was fun. competitive. It was fun. Like driving one of those cars. I've driven a lot. Of, I've driven nitrous cars, naturally aspirated cars, uh, turbo Supra, turbo Supras with a clutch, turbo Supras with a turbo 400. I've driven a lot of different cars. The most fun that I have is when I strap into Goldie. This, that's your new car. We'll, re, we'll reword that. The, He's driven a lot of cars, but the most fun he's ever had driving a car is in a Honda Civic. It is. It is. An eight-second Honda Civic. Seven-second Honda Civic. Seven-second Honda Civic. Put some respect on it, man. Tell him the time. (laughs) Tell him the time. Yeah, actually, correct me on that. Seven what? So Goldie's been 782, uh, like 192 with Bradley driving it. Bradley Dillon used to drive it um, after maps. That's the fastest K-Series sport front pass ever. Um, Maps went 797, I believe, or 98. First K-Series to ever go sevens in sport front. And my second event, I went 792. And my third event, I went 794. Nice. Yeah. And they told me I couldn't do it because I'm a big boy. They said, oh, I can't do it. I said, you'll see. <laughs> and we're going to go 780. They had some jockeys in there. We're going to go 780. Yeah, that car's had some drivers. That's what I'm saying. But that car's, yeah. And just light, size. No, I'm the same size. Some, some lightweight no, absolutely. drivers. Yeah. So there was, you know, I could see why people would say that, but I'm going to do it regardless. Maybe this year, FL2K. We're going to go 780s. Word. Yeah, we're going to go 780s. But I wanted something to, I wanted to drive something that was a new challenge, something that was different. The clutch was very appealing. The fact that I had never driven anything front wheel drive was very appealing. The class was very appealing because, you know, competitive sport compact class. Everything about it kind of just made sense to me. I'll answer the question for you because. Hugo's original question was, why did you switch or what was the transition like from a Toyota to the Honda? You briefed on it earlier. The real reason why you switched was your competitive nature Mm -hmm. because you've been competitive as a kid at this point in which now you could technically buy whatever race car you want. You're like, I want to be competitive. Yeah. And I wanted to race competitively. Correct. And like, I love Supras, but there's not a class. I can go to World Cup finals. I can go to TX2K. That's it. You know what I mean? Like if you want to race competitively in a sport compact 
import at multiple events and race all year, extreme front wheel drive is the class. Yeah. Period. In a Honda. Yeah, in a Honda. Well, no, not, not, well, not necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a couple, there's a couple hitters. Yeah, so there's Bradley a couple hitters. Went really good. He went like 8-1, I think. And that's a Dodge, right? And a Dodge. Yeah, and a Dodge. You got the Sentra. And Sentra went it's, 760s. He's killing it, yeah. Sentra. Oh, 760s. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I think that's the only car that's not a Honda that's been... There's only been three front-wheel drive cars that have gone 760. How about the Volkswagens? None of those guys? Some of those are fast. They're not that fast, and they don't really run extreme front. But I think it's just because nobody's like tried to really push it. Mm, you know what I mean? Okay. Uh, there's a... Couple of Mitsubishi's in the works. Mm -hmm. I'll take that back. Yeah, sport front's coming up. So technically, you could have chosen another platform. He chose. A, you he chose, chose the reliable, proven. One. I, I, I chose proven, the proven, proven one. And honestly, like I said, man, watching maps drive Goldie is one hundred and ten percent the reason that I am in love with with that class. That's what's up. Yeah. So I asked earlier about the biggest challenge starting a shop at a young age, but because, you know, technically you had a shop, you're managing a shop prior to you owning a shop. There wasn't really many challenges, but in the time that you've owned the shop, what is the one biggest challenge that you could name of owning a shop? Man, you know, I think the biggest challenge to owning a performance shop, at least in my opinion, is I feel like a lot of us go through this kind of like identity crisis of am I going to be this online parts store? Am I going to be an engine builder? Am I going to be a fabricator? Am I going to work on Supras? Am I going to be a dyno tuning shop? And my humble opinion on that is you should find one or two or three things that like you are good at and you are passionate about and stick to those. Like in you know, we've been open since 2011 and we've worked on other cars, but like we still primarily work on Toyota Supras. And the reason for that is because I would rather be great at what we do than just be mediocre okay at what we do. But I'm working on everything, you know, Dodge Vipers, Hondas, Toyota Supras, Nissans. Like I wanted us to be the best, the best, you know, or as close to that as possible. We're still striving for it every day, you know, and my pride probably got in the way of that a couple times, but if I could start over, I would put all my chips into that. Into being a super shop. Yeah. And you did mention, are you a dyno shop, a fabricator shop? What is induction performance in your words? Well, the reason I mentioned is because we're having this identity crisis right now. Now, I mean, we, we're an online parts store. We do a lot of that, but we try to focus on Supras and like parts that we use. I, I, We've always tried, and myself and Alpha and my guys, we all feel strongly that it wouldn't be right and it just doesn't feel right and it doesn't make sense to sell you something that I don't know anything about. So if you call me and say, hey, I need a turbo for my Viper, I can, I'm, I can speak you know, with a little bit of knowledge, but I don't know. The answer is I don't know what turbo you need. If you call me and say, I want to make 750 horsepower I have a stock motor 2J with this computer and this is the fuel that I'm limited to and this turbo mint, I can tell you exactly what you need. And that's what you're calling us for, that expertise. Um, and again, it takes time to get to that point, but I would have just sooner realized that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an expert at the couple things that we do 
Um, and I feel like in the last couple of years, we've really honed in on that. Like we've honed in on just developing 2JZ products, developing our 2JZ engine program, focusing more on 2J stuff um, because that's what we know. As a performance shop, where do you mainly see your revenue? Um, I mean, honestly, if you, if you, a lot of people don't do this, but if you run your performance shop right, you know, the shop, the, the, the labor is going to be the most profitable thing if you really think about it, right? If you have a shop and you charge 125 bucks an hour and you charge for your hours accordingly, that should be your most profitable thing. Unfortunately, the part sales thing isn't like what it used to be. So, you know, you got guys that will go on Amazon and buy a turbo if they can, you know, mm -hmm. and like you can't compete with that. Um, so parts is not where it's at as far as like the most profitable thing. But in general, if you want to get into the motorsports or whether it's drift cars or whatever, the best advice I could give you is to figure out what you're best at, whether it's and fabricating, it. tuning, building engines, wiring whatever that is and do that. And if it's something that it's a service, you're going to make your most money and you're going to control it because it's something that you're doing. You're getting up and doing every day. And it's, Where, good, it's good hearing you say that because we've had previous guests that we asked these questions of, you know, what will you change? And it's always, you know what? I want to be the best at. Mm -hmm. It's not, again, you know, you can have a machine shop, you can sell parts, you could do this, but all that stuff is bringing in little where you, if you focus on, you know, the, the one thing that you're good at and you knock it out the park every time, yep. that, that's your specialty. Yeah. Now I know like, hey, I'm going to go to Vic for, for this because I, I don't need to worry about anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think if you can, and if you can control that service, that's another struggle is relying on other people. Like if your whole business is built around relying on vendors or relying on this guy or that yeah, guy. Yeah, you ain't going to have no time. To yeah, no like, money. well, and you can get into bad spots. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and we all do. Because no matter what, like no, none of us are completely self-sufficient. Self yeah. Right? So like, there's gonna be a time where you have a car on your left, and like you could finish that car if this one part showed up. That's still gonna happen. That's that's just a but shop you want to minimize that. You know what I mean? You want to like if you can do a service that you are in control of, or products that you are in control of, and you are manufacturing. That's the that's the key. I always ask the question too on if if you notice on most of the podcasts. Do you ever give out your, your personal number to all your customers? Not all, but yeah, I do. People that I feel, and this isn't like a shot at anybody, people that I feel that can could, respect benefit, your time. Well, could benefit from having it, mm -hmm. A, and will also respect my time. It's a two-piece two deal. Yeah. Like, if I don't think that you respect my time and my, you know, like the fact that when I'm at home, I'm at home with my, my kids, my wife, and I think you're just, you know, not going to be respectful of that, there's no shot. And even and if I do, and I feel like you're disrespecting at all, like that, you know, that aspect of my life, I just I'll never answer. I'll, I won't work on your car or whatever. I just yeah. It, I think it comes down to that for everybody. Yeah. So you went from you know I guess general repair, you know, uh, working with your dad, you're changing brakes, literally mm -hmm. doing a little bit of everything. Once you got into working on Supras, you chose your niche. Like I'm. I, I like Supras, I'll work on Supras. And now you're at your next stage of where you're, I guess, fine tuning your business of induction performance of, yeah, we work on Supras and this is how we make our money. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think that legitimately, if you look at a lot of the shops that have been around for a long time, I think like that it, 
really takes. Like if you just get into this and you don't have, like I didn't go to school, I didn't go to college, I didn't, I don't have any, I didn't have any business background. Like all this stuff, we learned it the hard way. Like I was saying earlier, like the business side of it, you know. Like I, the, the knowledge of working on the car is that's the easy part. Learning how to run a business as you're running a business is difficult. The you cash know what I mean? flow. Yeah, yeah. How to so, deal with your vendors. I feel like it takes like ten years. To figure that to stuff figure out. figure all that stuff out. No. And like, even to this day, do you have any mentors helping you through it? Or yeah, is this all just... 100%. I mean, I'm very lucky that I have a lot of really good friends. You know what I mean? And we all bounce stuff off of each other. And I try to be... I'm so grateful for the people that have told me things. And just any little nugget of information that people have given me over the years. That now I'm in a spot where I feel like I've learned a lot. I try to share as much as I can. I was just talking to you about yeah. some business stuff outside and I was like, hey man, completely unprovoked. I was like, my only regret is not doing this, this, and this when I first started. And I just said it. I wasn't saying do this or do that. Because we don't know it. any better. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I didn't know any better. You know what I mean? I just said it. If I knew, if I knew in 2011 half of what I know now, I'd be in great shape. Now, so, so basically you're saying your mentorship is available at a price. <laughs> no, nah, no price, no price. If you're if you're a good friend or a good ambassador of this industry and you call me and you need help, I swear I'll help you. So from working on cars, racing cars, how did buying a track even happen? I mean, that's like a racer's dream. I want to own my own racetrack. How? Honestly, man, like well, well, I'll go into the story, but like I still like when you say it it still like hits me like that. Like, I, like it's so unreal. Like I own a race. No, it's unreal. Like it, it does. It's, it's crazy, man. Um, but I just, I, I will always believe that if you just do the right thing by people, these kind of opportunities will present themselves if they're meant to be, you know? And so the backstory is in 2013, we were building Supras and building cars and we were going to Bradenton all the time. It was our closest quarter mile track. And we loved it and we were testing cars and we became like I, I made friends with like everybody that worked there and i would beg these guys i want to do an event here i want to do an event i want to do an event i want to do an event and i didn't think it was ever going to happen but my boy pd that still works with us to this day he's like i'm going to talk to alan which is the previous owner and i'll see what i could do so one day i'm sitting at our first shop it's like 2000 yeah 2013 sitting there Guy walks in. I've never met him before. And he goes, I'm looking for Victor. And I'm like, Victor, how, you know, how can I help you? Because I'm Alan from Bradenton Motorsports Park. And I'm like, no, sure. so like, I stop what I'm doing. I put the phone on silent. I sit him down and I give him my story. Like, he's asking me, you know, like about like how I got into it and what I want to do and all this. I give him my story. I give him my idea for an event. And he's like, let me see what I could do. And I'll, I'll see if we have any dates available and I'll get back with you. Keep in mind, you're 23 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So I get an email from him and he gives me a date. And I swear, I replied to the email before I even looked at the date. I was like, yes. Like, I don't care. Just give me a shot. I just knew that there was like a demand for it in that area and that I could make it and it could it would do well. So he gave me a date. We did our first FL2K. And now we're doing the event and like people are coming in and stuff, but I've never done one before. So I don't know like what's good, what's bad, whatever. Ended up, it was a decent event. And I'm like, are they going to give me another date? Like, am I going to be able to do this again? 
So we go to lunch and he's like, what do you think about doing this, doing this again next year? Same place, same time. And I'm like, done. So do that with him for a couple of years. That event starts to grow and get legs and do well. Um, and, you know, we went from just like they gave us a day and we just did something to one of the bigger events at Bradenton. So that wasn't, we started in 13 by 16, 17, 18 or 16, 17, me and Alan are close. We're going to lunch like once a week or once a month. And like, he's a mentor of mine. Great. Just amazing guy, a great dude. And just, you could tell he did this, this man genuinely just wanted to see me do well. So for a long time, I go to the track for testing. I go to the track for FL2K. They used to do IFO. I'd go for IFO. That's it. I don't know anything about a pro mod. I don't know anything about any of his other events. None of that. He's like, you should come to the Snowbirds. So long story short, I don't make it. Snowbirds happens. I call him on Monday. I'm like, hey, man, Monday or Tuesday, how was the event? He goes, oh, man, it was really good, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Um, I had a heart attack. I'm like, what do you mean you had a heart attack? Damn. <laughs> so he... During the event, like Saturday of Snowbird, like pro mods are going down the track. We have the jet show. He had a, a mild heart attack, went to the hospital, whatever. And uh, he said that, I believe it was his wife, said to him, man, you know, God forbid something were to happen to you. What am I supposed to do with that racetrack? And he said he had never thought about it before. And he turned to her and he said, call Dave, have Dave call Victor. You guys sell it to Victor. So he tells me that and I'm just like taking all this in like you had a heart attack and like you would sell me the track and I'm like whatever but it it's oh, now it's now it's in my head it's always going to be there like this like this opportunities yeah up. one day he make say hey I want to sell you this racetrack you know what I mean like it, it's a it's a, even a thing which is like that's not even something that I dreamt of you know like being real and I dream about a lot of stuff like 2016 I have, yeah I have big dreams Owning a racetrack, nowhere on that at all. So we go to lunch all the time. Probably like beginning of 2018, we're at lunch. And he's like, so remember that time I told you that? Whatever. And I was like, yeah. He's like, I think it's time. He's like, I don't think I want to wait till then. I think I want to do it now. What year is this now? 20, beginning of 2018. So I'm blown away. Like just like what you know uh we talk about it we talk about it we talk about it we start figuring out how to do it i start fire sailing supras and anything i had that i could in april 2018 i bought the track wow yeah. now no you saying you fire selling supras how many supras did you have at the time oh at that time yeah so at that time i was buying and selling supras and like anything that like was really good i would try to keep <laughs> so I had, a, I, had a, I, had a, I had a nice collection I had that I remember probably like six now 2018 that's kind of before the super like that's when bubble. the market started going up it started going up and that's so but, I was buying and selling them and like I was seeing it like it was happening in front of my face it was yeah. going up and I had some cool cars like I had I had a 98 Supra with 3500 miles so 98's the last year they made it, black on black, six speed, twin turbo, like 
the, the car, car that you would have ordered if you could get a time machine and go to 1998 for 3,500 miles. And that, that car's still around, though. It is. I right? sold it to a buddy of mine. Yeah, yeah so that's, that, that's kind of cool. Yeah, so like I sold that car. All the cars that, I, like, that were like my personal collection, they're actually, for the most part, all still floating around with friends of mine and stuff. Uh, my brother took one of the Supras. But long story short, I just started selling stuff and doing whatever I could because... To get that cash together. It's unheard of. Like, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. Like, what? What are you yeah. talking about? Buy a racetrack, you know? And Alan coached me through it and he made it happen. And April of 2018, uh, I was 30. I wasn't even... I was 28. 28 years old. And made it happen. You bought a racetrack when you were 28 years old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Successful. Not having too. any experience running a racetrack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I good was going to run. I, I will say I was good at running events, but because Alan was the way that he was, like, there's a lot of details. You know, there's a lot of details that go into running an event. You only ran events for four years, though, because you said 2014 is when you started. 2013. 2013. Yeah. Five, years. Five, years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Five years. But <laughs> I will say, I think Alan is probably, Alan, Dave, into that fact. Everybody that was at Bradenton when I was doing my events, they're some of the best at running an event. So like every little detail that like I would never think of, they would pull me aside and be like, all right, so look at this and look at that. And we got to do this differently. We have to do that. And I was learning. And like the whole time I was being groomed for this job, but I just had no idea. You know what I mean? Um, and it worked out. Is he still around, Alan? Yeah, he's still around. Um, you know, he's hands still on or. No, not really hands-on with my stuff. He's hands-on in, in the automotive industry. Uh, he helps out with some other guys that do stuff. And he's behind the scenes, but he's a mentor to some people that do some really cool stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Great dude. The guy's a le living legend. What is the biggest challenge you've faced owning a racetrack? In South Florida. We're not quite South not, You're not South, right? What is yeah. that? Yeah. We're like... Central? Yeah, we're Central Florida. Okay. Um, biggest challenge, man. Right now, our biggest challenge is urban sprawl. Um, they're going to be building houses all over Bradenton area where we're at, you know? Um, and in 2005, when I started going there, you would get off of that exit 220, State Road 64, and there was a Hess gas station and a McDonald's and a Bank of America. And if you needed anything, that's where you stopped. And if you missed it, you missed it. And now it's not the case. It's getting just, I mean, it's insane how much they've developed. And by urban sprawl, you mean housing. Correct, yeah. So there's, a, there's like a, a line that the county lays out and they say, hey, we're not going to allow anybody to build past this line until XYZ date. So for us, that was 2040. So last summer, we did millions and millions of dollars in upgrades. Brand new concrete track surface. Um, Bleachers. All new, you know, aluminum grandstands. Uh, did a bunch of paving. We had a bunch of stuff, you know. Um, and shortly after that, we found out you know, a lot of people heard about it, but there were a bunch of hearings and long story short, they broke that line um, and they passed, they, they approved or pre-approved for some people to build houses and communities pretty close to us. And I know that was shortly right after 
we had just seen each other at um pri yep and literally right after you guys went back you and cletus had yep. to you know go go in front of the the board to, to, so talk about that you said at some point you were told 2040 there would be no houses near the track like what changed so i guess what changed my hold on i have to be politically correct politics yeah um i don't know what changed i know that with anything there's loopholes and they were able to build to that point but the loophole that I, that i've learned or what i can gather is that if you build houses up into this street and they tell you you can't build past the street well technically you can because once you build to here you can it's easy to get a continuance or a continuation so it's easy to get this all rezoned and then say i'm going to do a continuation to of over this here neighborhood over here but there's a line they broke it i scratch my head still you i scratch my head often i mean and like it, <laughs> this was how long ago did you find this out so a year ago and have they have you seen a little, them a little less than a year building oh it's discouraging sometimes like you, you see when, stuff you drive, going yeah, up yeah when you drive down state road 64 and you see them clearing land and like model homes are up apartment buildings that are complete new public supermarkets like we had a Publix, and now a mile down the road there's another one brand new and a whole plaza um you know like you start to see that stuff gas stations you know, shopping plazas, they, like they, you they said. They know yeah. what it is. They know what's coming. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're People bringing just, that to yeah. support the community. Yeah. They're supporting what's coming. Yep. Um, so that's kind of, again, it's discouraging and it's a challenge. Uh, we have, you know. So what was that hearing all about then? We were trying to get it to be denied. But what we didn't know was that at that point, it already had been pre-approved. And once it's pre-approved. It's almost no carrying back. Yeah. So you can't tell, I can't tell you, yes, you, you're pre-approved to do this. And the next hearing, because a thousand people are outside, tell you, sorry, I told you that you can't really do it. You know, these people spend millions of dollars as well to when they got that pre-approval to get it going. So what was the result of that hearing? They were approved. That's it. So, I mean, it's not, that's it in the sense that like nothing's going to, I don't think anything's going to happen today or tomorrow. It may take five years. It may take 10 years may take three years. It depends on the economy. It depends on a lot of things and how, how long these houses are selling. But there's going to be some effects. You know what I mean? There's going to be a lot more traffic. Um, are they going to want to widen the road? Where are they going to take that from? You know what I mean? Like, is that going to be on us? Because uh, you're literally your track is... It butts up to the road. The road. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so if like, you were to add another lane, you're on your property. Yeah. Are there going to be traffic lights? There's going to be a ton of traffic. Is there going to be issues with e uh, ingress and egress when people are pulling in and pulling out? Um, like these are all the things that you have to start to think about. And it's tough because my thing, since I've had that track, I've been known for reinvesting into the facility and into the sport. And I've spent a lot of money on that place since I've gotten it. Like I said, I mean, I just did bleachers and brand new concrete track surface and tons of new asphalt parking and new lighting and new timing system. I've done a lot of stuff, but now it's hard because, so that's, that's what is expected of me. Like this guy's gonna give us the best of the best every time he can. And that's who I am as a person. But you have to be mindful now, like how long do we got? Is it 10 years? Is it 20 years? Is it five years? Yeah. Like at what point 
do I have, I, I'm going to have to have a, a, a real conversation with myself, like pump the brakes a little. I mean, we're fortunate that we have a ton of support. Um, you know, so we're, our neighbor is Garrett and Cletus at the, or Cletus at the Freedom Factory. Um, and he just bought that track. Yeah, he bought it after I bought mine. So we're lucky that we have. Same year? No, he bought 2020. Surely after. Yeah, it was like a year or two after. And he dumped a lot of money. Yeah, he dumped too. a lot of money. So we're lucky that like collectively we have a ton of support. We have a good following. We can make some noise. Um, and we stick together, you know, like they can't bully me without bullying him and vice versa. We stick together. We're really good friends. So you bought your track. So you own the land. Yes. And so does Cletus. Correct. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Now the neighboring, now is there any opportunity for you to like pick up some of the the neighboring land or is that already sold? Sounds like people already bought it. Yeah. There's been some opportunities too, but it's not easy because now people, so it's now that they know it's coming. You have people that know something's coming and they may be worth more. So they don't want to sell. Right. You have people that have been there forever and they're like, screw those people. We're not selling them anything. Yeah. You know? So it's like, it's hard. It's, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird situation. It sounds like you might, um, one of you guys might need to run for a seat in that, um, we're not corrupt on the board. You know what I mean? You know, I'm just saying we're not, we're not, we're not grimy (laughs) enough to be politicians. (laughs) So is the plan, to put houses like directly next door to the track? Not directly next door, but pretty damn close. Like how many feet? Because I'm familiar with the track. You have the track, then you have land that's parking for the spectators. Yep, yep, yep. Like were they planning to put houses next to the, next to the spectator lot? Um, I would say, so like you're familiar with the track. If you're driving down State Road 64, you know, you get to that spectator lot. I would say from that spectator lot, Half a mile away, quarter mile away. So that's that's close. That's yeah. close. close. And they're like talking about these walls. They ain't stopping that noise. No, they're talking about building an elementary school in this neighborhood. Yeah, that's wild. I'm like, the week of the snowbirds or U.S. Street Nationals, we test pro mod cars. Yeah, from Sunday to Sunday, like all day. The kids aren't going to be able to hear the teacher, <laughs> like nothing. You know what I mean? Like this is crazy stuff, but. We've pleaded our case, but at the end of the day, you know, you put yourself in their shoes. They've spent millions of dollars to even get to this point. It's just business for them. Yeah. That's wild. So, and in this area right now, there is no schools, right? No. So it's bound to happen. Yeah. Well, if they're going to build that many houses. Man, put that closer to to the exit. I know, I know, I know. We'll see. I think that. Again, with the amount of support that we have, I think that we'll be okay. I think we'll figure something out when the, when push comes to show, whether it's we you know move 15 miles east and build another track, a brand new track, with it, with knowing what we know now, and the things that we've learned, you know, from our years of operating, maybe that'll happen. Maybe we'll have an even more badass facility. You know, so I'm not too too worried about it. It's challenging. It's it's something we'll have to learn to live with. For a little while, and then someday we're gonna have to figure out something. How much would you sell Bradenton? Mo- Let me reword that. How much would you sell Bradenton Motorsports Park for today? Uh, you can't put a price on that place. Hundred million. I mean, oh, no. <laughs> that's a lot of money. The price would have to be. How many acres is it? That's a lot. the The price has to be enough to go build another racetrack. I like I like that you answer. I, mean? I like that answer. So 
whatever that is. Whatever it costs to build a badass facility with, with more acres and more land to kind of give you more cushion, that's what the price is. And if not, we're going to make the noise as much as we can and they'll just have to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, enlightening to know that you have a, you're, one, you're young. Two, you have a goal of, well, if my track gets shut down, I have another goal of opening up another yeah. one. Cause and, and to be and to be clear, I, I, I don't want to, that's the right thing to say. I mean it, but it's the right thing to say, but it's not always, it hasn't always been that clear. Um, what do you mean by that? You know, sometimes you you start to feel like defeated. You know, mm. there was a there was a point in time where where all this was going on. I was like, we'll just run for as long as we can, and then we'll pack up our bags and we'll go home. And so this sentiment wasn't how it was. I, it just depends on the day, man. I mean, no, it's, it's, it's not it's even a that. I want to. I'll say that for me, uh, I got to give credit to Cletus on that because he's another one of my really good friends and a mentor. And he's just told me that he, you know, we talked about it. He's pushed me. He's like, no, nah. he's like. Whenever that day ha- comes, we just have to, they have to pay us enough to build another track or like, we have to be able to build another track. Like we feel sh- he's pushed me and we feel strongly that no matter what we do, we're going to make sure that there's a track strip in Bradenton, period. Might not be Bradenton though. Bradenton, Sarasota. We're going to be in there. <laughs> That's what's up. From building race cars, owning the racetrack, you mentioned a little bit about promoting the events. I'd like to get into that more because FL2K, your first event was 2013. So 10 years of running events now. I'll start with this. Everybody's familiar with Texas 2K. Obviously, FL2K is such a similar name. Induction Performance is actually the presenting sponsor of Texas 2K. We were. We're not anymore, but we were, yep. Okay, so I've seen the name connected for very long. Could you elaborate on the affiliation or disassociation or yeah, no, what it is between the two? So 2007, I was a senior in high school and my spring break just so happened to fall on the same week as TX2K. And a couple of friends of mine were like, man, you got to go. And at this point, I'm living in Florida and it's a shorter drive. A lot of people from Florida would go. Like, you got to go to this event. You got to go. You got to go. So sponsored the event went with a couple guys drove my dad's supra in 2007 sponsored the event as induction performance no uh we were in induction performance yeah i was like time. shop wasn't around no yet. my it was just under like my dad's business name at the time um you know we had a couple supers we worked on but i just we wanted to support it and be a part of it so drove out there drove drove my dad's supra there may or may not have blown up blown the head gasket on the way there street racing uh overnight some parts fixed it raced but essentially just got hooked on this event and this was just like you had a great time it, it was amazing right so fast forward you know i sponsored every year since 2007 and have not missed one wow. since 2007 fell in love with this event and at one point like a bunch of people from Florida, we would all caravan and like link up along the way. And we realized like, man, there's so many people here from Florida. We need something like this in Florida. Um, so when I finally got the okay to do an event, and this 
this has always been my thing. I, I feel the hardest part about creating a new event is the name. I feel the name can, could, name, could, could make or break you. Hardest thing. Everything's taken or has been done or sounds similar to something else. Like it's a, it's, it's a key part of the event. And I had wanted to call it FL2K, but to me, the right thing to do was to reach out to Peter Block who does TX2K. So I call Peter and I'm like, hey man, I have this crazy idea. I want to do this event. What do you think? And he was a little hesitant, but ultimately he gave me his blessing and we made an agreement. Um, and you know, the 2K is trademarked, TX2K. And like the use of the 2K moniker in automotive use has its own trademark. And we have a trade, uh, an agreement that I'm allowed to use it. I'm the only other event, it's TX2K and FL2K. So with his blessing and his support, uh, we made it happen. Did you ask him to partner on the event or just I asked use him name? if we could use the name. Mm. And he was definitely hesitant. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I begged him before being real. And I think he knew that I would do the best that I could. And I think I've done a decent job um, of, you know, like just representing the brand well. And I think at a certain point, so it jumpstarts FL2K to use that name because there's already that brand name recognition of TX2K. Everybody knows TX2K. Mm -hmm. It's like arguably the greatest streetcar event on the planet. So everyone knows it. So it gave us kind of a jumpstart. And I feel like at some point when we started to do really well, we both fed off of each other. We probably both still do to an extent, you know? So I think it's just, it's a good, it, it, it's a good relationship. It just works. So from the, from the start, it was always approved by TX2K, but not associated with TX2K. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, what works in Texas for that event may not work in Florida. You know what I mean? Like it's two it's different styles. They're, they're right. similar, but they're different. You know, like we do a no time class. They don't do a no time class. Um, there's, there's differences and like there's things that we do that may not work there and vice versa. So while there is a lot of crossover um, and it's, again, it's, there's a good synergy between the two. It's, they're two, they're two pretty different events, you know, and we help each other as much as we can. And if I ever have, you know, if I ever need something, he's been a good mentor to me as well. I'll call him and bounce ideas off of him and stuff. And he's definitely, you know, helped me get, get it going. Your event has always been in October. Always. So is Always that, do you been, think, the reason why he was okay with it? Because this event oh yeah, is in the, March? The date is definitely a factor. Like, if I called him and said, hey, I want to do an event in February, right. called the FL2K, I mean, I wouldn't even make that phone call. You know what I mean? But You yeah, just know, yeah. Yeah, but, um, yeah, I think that that for sure, I think the fact that he knew I was a huge, I mean, a huge supporter and fan of TX2K to the point that I, I think he knows that, like, I would never do something to negatively affect TX2K. I would only do things to you know, have a positive impact on TX2K. I think all that stuff. And, you know, again, I try to just... You try just, to do good business. I just try to, yeah, I just try to always be transparent and just be real with people, man. And I think it pays off. What is the biggest challenge you face organizing events? Honestly, the biggest thing in Florida is weather. Weather. <laughs> man, it could be like raining in one lane and not the other, raining on like the shutdown of the track and not the beginning of the track. I think weather is the hardest thing. Um, we're lucky, man. But 
not that Bradenton was like really, it, it's a, it was a well-established track, but it wasn't like really, really popping when we, when I got it, but it is now. And like, we have so much support, man. It's like, it's like cheating almost like, you know, we started an event and like the way I, the way I explain it to people, like if I say, Hey, tomorrow or tomorrow, I'm going to announce an event. It's going to be the first time I'm doing it. Like our base, like our core audience, our base is, is really strong. You know what I mean? So it makes it pretty, pretty good. Um, so the only thing that can mess it up is the weather. Man, honestly, we have such a good crew. And we have such a good core audience and such a good following and so many good supporters and good sponsors. Again, I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe I'm crazy, but I just, it's like, I just, I feel like I've had it pretty easy. And how, how often does weather mess up your business? Uh, man. Lately, it's been pretty good. It's, we've had, we, I mean, we, we've had, you've seen it. We've had some pretty, pretty bad stuff. Like last year, we had a hurricane the week before, two weeks before FL2K caused like major damage. We had to move FL2K to Gainesville, which is like, I don't even like talking about it because it doesn't even sound real. It's like unheard of. But I had. Talk about it. So hurricane comes through. All right. So we're going to go backwards here. What is the biggest challenge you've faced hosting events? I think this is it, this right? This is it. All right. So this one is it. For sure. A hurricane happened. So we get a hurricane. So we're doing all these upgrades to the track, right? So we're like our backs against the wall. We have to get them done. Like the whole goal was to get them done. And like before the event. Yeah. Have, like have FL2K on like a brand new facility, you know? So two weeks before the event, get a hur- have a hurricane come through. Tons of damage. So. What did it do to the track? Oh, I mean, it tore all kinds of stuff up. Our, our scoreboards came down like i mean like you name it bleachers got messed up signs got messed up timing equipment got messed up the scoreboard got messed up the you know like putting those things up and down is not easy like whatever surface got messed up no um but everything else everything everything that can get messed up got messed up and you have to understand is that like bradenton didn't even have the worst of that hurricane so now it's hard to rent equipment it's hard to get construction crews because they're all Fixing going to help people now. that have real problems. You know, what yeah, I mean? like, yeah, yeah. we're dealing with something kind of superficial, you know? Right. To me, it's a big deal, but in the grand scheme of things, there's people like no power, you know no what I'm water. Saying? Yeah. So you can't fix anything. So hurricane happens, go down there, just defeated, discouraged, like, just like, man, what the hell? Tons of people step up, friends, supporters, locals, volunteering, cleaning up, just fixing things, anything they could do. And we're working, 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 trying to like salvage it, figure it out. But the whole time, everyone's like looking at me like, Hey man, if we don't get this fixed, like what's the, what's the backup, you know? And now I have people coming from all over the place. You guys were waiting on me to make a call, right? Like we're about to drive from Jersey, Vic, what's, what's going to happen? So if we can't get this place fixed up, what are we going to do? So, man, I don't know. I think we have to cancel the event, you know? So we start talking about that. And my boys, again, saved the day. I got with uh, Alan and Cletus, and we're all talking. And we're like, what about if we move the event? Like, well, the only track that I think we could move it to realistically in Florida is Gainesville. 
which is easier said than done. It's a big NHRA track, you know, like it's two weeks. No, it's a week and a half before. No, it's actually a week. I've never even been to Gainesville. Like <laughs> a couple hours away. Yeah. So actually, this, how many hours away is it from you? Two hours. North. Yeah. So all this is happening. Which is good though, because the hurricane affected South, South correct. Florida. Yeah, so it worked because like even so Gainesville didn't get touched. No, and hotels no. were impacted. We had people that like their Airbnbs were canceled on them. Hotels were canceled on them. Like we had to figure this out. Like this is crazy. A year, a week before the event. A week before the event, and I'm having a baby on October third. The event is October sixth. <laughs> so I've never even been to Gainesville. We make some calls. They'll entertain it. This is like on a, the Friday before the event. So one week from the event. Saturday morning, wake up early. Me and my sister get in the car, drive up there, tour, you know, do a tour, try to like figure out some logistics, whatever. And I sign a contract to rent the track and do this event. I haven't. I, I just signed it. Like I kind of like... You ever have a situation where you force yourself into the situation? You were there. I was like, yo, you know what? I put my back against the wall. And I what, if this, what if the num numbers weren't profitable? You got to do what you got to do. Sometimes you take a lot. But it could have been upside down though, right? 100% it could have been upside down. But was it one of those like, yo, it doesn't even make financially make sense to do this. Let's just cancel it. So, yes, it was. That's what that was the thought. But the thing is, it goes back to what I said. You ain't trying to give up. When I... I'm not trying to give up. And when I put on an event or when I call my sponsors, like long-term sponsors and racers or whoever it is, when I call these people and ask them for anything, they support me. The racers support me. Like I can't let these people down. I need them to know that they can count on me. That's a big thing. Like and when you're doing events, if there's anything on your record of you being unreliable or you don't pay payouts. Or you hey, let's be stuff. realistic. A hurricane just came through. My care. track was destroyed. I think people would have gave you the cord. Like, 50, I get it, Vic. 50% of them might have. Nah. You don't know. You just don't know. I still you get, understand it? I, I get I still it. Get, if, if, I still if it get got shit, canceled. I still get shit for moving that event. For moving it. You should have just canceled it, is, is what you're thinking? Some people say I should have. Some people say I did the right thing. Some people say I did an amazing thing. Right. Hey. Yeah, you're never going to make everyone happy. No, exactly. So, Which is also a reason why I'm not going to make everyone happy. Is this gonna, does this make financial sense? It was a risk I was willing to take. You know, to, it was you, a risk it, I was willing to take to not let the racers down. So like when, we, when I signed that contract, I hadn't even talked to my staff yet. Like we had to move all of our stuff, our tractors, our rotators, our sprayer, our our sprayers, our, you know, glue, our staff. We had to rent Airbnbs. We had to make a hotel deal up there to get hotels for people up there. You just had to move like people, we people had, already shipped their setup to you. Yeah, we had, we had, to, we had merch set up. Uh, sponsors that had sent us all their stuff. We had to move up there. I'm having a kid on Monday. <laughs> I'm not going to get out of the hospital till Wednesday. The event starts on Thursday. It, it was crazy. And did your kid come on Monday? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But we did it. And how did all that stuff get up there? Trailers? Yeah. A lot of trailers. Man, me and shout out to my to my my little sister Adriana. She drove with me 
She she helped me load stuff. Her, I mean, everybody did, but her. She, I was tired, bro. She with me twenty four seven, loading stuff up, driving back and forth to Gainesville as many times. How many hours? Human Kennedy, each way. Two, two hours. Two and a half. Yeah. In traffic. Man. Remember, in one day, it was crazy. Went to the track, loaded up the trailer, and in my head, I'm like, I'm gonna go load the trailer, and in the morning, I'll do a run. And you start doing it. I loaded the trailer up and I drove to Gainesville. I'm like, all right. Still got time. So go back, load it up again. Like, I'll do another run in the morning. Drove back to Gainesville. Like, I did that like three times. But like, energy drinks and like support. And Adrenaline like, was rushing. Yeah, and like, I had all my staff was helping me and doing the same thing. And like, we just made it happen. But we went into it. The conversations were, if, not one single spectator shows up, but all the racers show up and we do right by the racers. We, we, we save our name. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're doing the right thing by the racers because the way I've always looked at this industry, the event stuff is it's an, it's an entertainment industry. And these are like your actors, but they don't get paid. They pay to show up and act. Now what they get, Remember, it's an ego-driven sport. What they get from us is the chance to win some money, and we provide them a platform and a stage to race on a you know to race on a big stage. The bigger the stage, the more they like it. The bigger right. the ego. You know what I'm saying? The bigger, the more it feeds your ego. So you have to have the racers. You could be, you could do whatever you want. I can get twenty thousand spectators to show up. If I don't have racers, I have nothing. They all leave. You have to have the racers. So I was like, if not a single spectator shows up and 75% of the racers show up and we do right by them, we will have them forever. Those people will support us forever because they're going to know that we will not let them down. We do whatever it takes. We'll do whatever it takes. That was the thought process. Did the track Gainesville, because they knew, you know, you know, he's got no option at this point. Did they hit you over the head? No, I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll be real. Um, NHRA, that's an NHRA on track. They, uh, they stepped up and they helped us out a lot. They, um, I mean, it was very expensive because just because of the nature of the beast, the expenses that go into moving everything and there's still a track rental fee and then, you know, labor insurances, like it was, it was expensive. Don't get me wrong, but they could have, they could have killed yeah. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they didn't, they were, they were extremely accommodating. They had a great staff. That was that turned out that could have went bad. That, that whole deal had a million different ways it could have went bad. And between their staff and our staff and then our racers and our fans, everybody made the best of it, man. And it was a, it was a great experience. I had, I had a blast. Now you pulled it off. If I didn't own Bradenton, I'd be moving that event around every year just cause it was fun. And your kid was one day old. <laughs> yeah. Like three days, uh, old. three days old. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So speaking my, of my wife's, my wife's a real MVP. Nah, the real MVP. Let me do all that stuff. You know, if he, I mean, if I were her, I'd have been like, sit down. Just sit down. Right, right, right. Chill out. You know what I mean? My wife, she pushes me more than almost anybody I know. So going to say that, you know, you, you providing that stage, same thing, PRI, we we're talking over a table, just a couple of us, and you came up with a crazy idea and you said, hey, Hugo, do you think I can get X amount of racers for the World Series of Pro Mod to come down. And this was front wheel drive cars. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think you can make it happen. And you were like, I said, we got one right here. 
you know, friend of the room, Ricky Silva. He was like, yeah, I think you can make it happen. It's between cars and then, you know, up here and down there. And talk about setting the stage. You kind of set, you know, for the most part, for sport one front wheel drive to race at the World Series of Pro Mod, that was a huge stage. Yeah, no, I mean, it was probably the biggest purse for that class ever. Mm -hmm. um, definitely a huge stage, you know. Um, that goes back to, uh, selfishly, I love that class, you know right. what I mean? So, like, I wanted to do it for some of the wrong reasons, you know. Right, I mean? right, like right. Some of it was for me, Personal. selfishly. Yeah, you Which know, is cool. whatever. But that, that wasn't, I had to do that. That's how I felt. So Drag Illustrated just announced their 2024 event. Yep. Back at your track. Yep. What dates? Uh, first weekend of March, whatever that is. I think I forget the, the dates, but first weekend of March. That Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'll be the guy to ask. Is the is there going to be front wheel drive racing at that event? I knew you were going to ask that because I know people weren't too happy because a lot of uh, oil downs, which is notorious with a uh, yeah. So front wheel drive class. It's definitely been a conversation that Wes and I have had. Um, selfishly, I want to do it again, but I mean, I, th I definitely think it's important that we have a better showing. Not that we had a bad showing, but Sportfront is at a point where it's been around for so long. Everybody's trying to go faster. The manufacturers are providing us parts that are making more and more power every year. And at the end of the day, they're still little four cylinder engines and we're making 10 times what they made from factory, you know, horsepower wise, they break. It is what it is. But we definitely need to, the class, for the class to survive long-term, we need to have more side-by-side -side racing and less braking. Um, so we are, we are discussing ways to incorporate front-wheel drive into this event again. We loved it. I loved it. My thought was we, I, have to, I have to put more eyes on this class because... Like, like we said, it's the it's only the, it's the premier class. It's the only import sport compact class left, in my eyes. Like you can race a pro import like rear wheel drive car twice a year. You know what I mean? It's what it is. Maybe three times a year you can go to what Pan Am's, World Cup, a, a race in Orlando. Maybe you know. So you can race that two or three times a year. I love those cars. That's what I grew up like. That was like the nope. best of the best growing up. Yeah. But there, there's no, there's nobody leading that train. There's no definitive rule set. There's no, you know, like tech director for any of that stuff. Like it, it's just, it's not organized. So me being me and Wes being Wes, something we've always talked about when I do his show is how can we get, how can we do some kind of crossover stuff? Like how can we get more guys that, you know, you go to FL2K, right? Stands will be packed at Bradenton. We've been doing the Snowbirds for over 50 years. I would venture to say 80% or more of the people at FL2K have never been to the Snowbirds. The Snowbirds is the, one of the sickest outlaw pro mod races on earth. Jet show, $50,000 to win pro mod race, side by side, just sick racing. If those people that are at FL2K, they were in the stands for Snowbirds, they'd be hooked. But how do we get them there? Yeah, that's always been the conversation, and we feel Wes and I. This is like I think what connects us. Before you get there, the question that you're going to answer right here is, how do you turn, how do you bring 
how do you get import racing fans to pro mod races? Well, that's, I guess that's what I'm answering. That's what me and Wes have always connected over is that we have to do that, that it's our responsibility to do that. If we care about drag racing as much as we do, it's our like responsibility to try to mix it up as much as possible and cross and do as many crossover things like that as we can because it's imperative for the sport to grow. Like, there's no reason that a sport front wheel drive guy shouldn't be in the stands watching pro mods in awe and be like, this is cool as hell. You know what I mean? And they should be thinking, that's where I want to end up. And there's no reason that pro mod guy shouldn't be watching sport front wheel drive guys and being like, dude, these little four cylinder cars crazy. are insane. <laughs> like they're clutch, they're shifting, the way you have to stage the car, putting down all this power on a little 20, 24 inch tire, like they should be impressed as well. And there needs to be that mutual like love and respect of our sport for our sport to continue to grow. And I don't like the segregation that we have in our sport. You know what I mean? Like we shouldn't have import events and domestic events and pro mod events. We should have drag racing events. And that was, that's something that me and Wes feel really strongly about. So our, our opportunity, our opportunity to, you know, work on that was to, to have extreme front wheel drive at World Series. And I think, I think you guys did a good job, but I think just because of the sheer payout amount, everyone was kind of like shooting. Swinging for the fence. Yeah, so I, I think it, it's also the first time that class has seen any kind of And it was also the first, first race of the year. For right, the front for, a lot, for a lot, a lot of new, people. A lot of new combos, new setups. Yeah. Some people came out on, you know, a brand new engine and it breaks. Like, you know, things that happen. Right. First race of the year. It's always tough. It's always the hardest and I think, And I think going on, like if you guys planned it, obviously now you guys have a date for next year. Yeah. If that was something that was going to be available, it, it gives everybody a chance of like, all right, yeah. we I'm need to go test our cars. I'm going to prepare February for that and break all that stuff and, right. and, and test figure all it out. New parts yeah. and so on. And I think it, it just gives. So as of today, no definite, but as it sounds of today, like the only thing I can tell you about world series of pro mod is that it's going to be bigger than last year. It's going to be better than last year. We're trying to, we're, we're working on ways to pay more money where we can. Um, which is insane because we already paid so much, you know, $100,000 to win Pro Modified. Like, you know, but we're what, trying, what was the total payout in that event for between all the classes? If you can, it's like 250000 That's a big purse, man. Yeah, yeah. But so we're, 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 we're having the event. We haven't released a lot of details yet because we're working, working all that out. Um, I feel strongly that you'll see front wheel drive cars there. We just have to make we just have to make it make sense, and I also like if we're gonna do that class, I'd like to increase the payout again. I think that I'd like it to be the World Series. It's always gonna be the World Series of Pro Mod, but I want it to be the World Series for us as well. You know yeah. what I mean? Like when we show up, I want that to also. I want us to feel the same way those Pro Mod guys feel. Like this is the race that I want to win. If I win one race this year, this I want is it to be one. this one. I like how you touched on you're an advocate of drag racing in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense. You own a drag strip. It doesn't matter. Make a model that goes down your track. It's you need cars yeah. to stay in business. And because you're a fan of the sport, you need cars to go down the track to make sure the sport continues. You need to make sure 
there's new fans coming in. And what is your take on, you know, I, you touched on, you don't like the segregation of the imports separating from the domestics. How, how do you change that? How do you make import fans appreciate domestics and how do you make domestic fans appreciate imports? What is What is your take on that? And how do you plan to change that? We just have to find more ways. I believe that, you just have to see it. And I and actually I think there's I think I could prove that. I think that I can tell you, I can name ten people or twenty people that I can call just off the top of my head that never saw a pro mod race last year, that when they asked me this year, Hey, are we gonna have front wheel drive at World Series Pro Mod again? And I was like, I'm not sure. They're like, I'll be there either way. I won't miss that event. That was the coolest drag race I've ever been to, some of the best racing I've ever seen. So I think we're already doing that. We're already seeing that. But I think my, my, my belief is that we just have to get them there once. You know what I mean? Like, you just have to see it. They don't know what they're missing. We just got to get them there one time. I like how you said that. You don't know what you're missing because you haven't been exposed to it. So the best way to increase the fans of that type of racing in general is at the big import races to have a few pro mods yeah. there so people could appreciate like, damn, those cars are fast yeah. and then vice versa. So the world series of pro mod is, you know, I guess taking the lead on exposing that. Yeah. You know, it's kind of been done before, but not with that direct mission of, you know, I want those fans to appreciate this as well. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And I mean, there's also the difference too, that some people prefer quarter mile drag, drag racing, which I do as well. And we run that, you know, we run the Pro Mods eighth mile. Some people have a difficult time understanding that or like grasping that. Like they see the numbers on the board and they're like, uh, oh, the race is already over. You know, like I think there's a little bit of that. So it just takes time. Like we just got to get, we'd have to put this in front of you. That's what it is. The pro, I believe in the product. Now I've just got to like just gotta put sell it, it in front of people. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Which I think you guys did a very good job last year. I mean, this event was dope. First event, man. First time doing that event at that track and working with Drag Illustrated, and that event was sick. Yeah. That was a vibe that I have not felt in a very long time, if ever. As a track owner, what is your opinion on the future of drag racing? Oh, man, I think drag racing is killing it right now. Um, How about the future of drag racing? Well, so that's the thing is I think that right now there are a lot of people doing a lot of good things in drag racing. A lot of good promoters. A lot of tracks spending money on their facilities, a lot of companies stepping up and sponsoring events that we haven't seen before, a lot of new events coming out. Um, we have all the ingredients to make drag racing survive and do well and grow, which that's what we need to do, right? We need it to grow. Um, I feel like I know where your where your head is at with this question. So I think I'll tell you where my head is at with a lot of tracks closing in the recent years. Mm -hmm. And because you're the first track owner to be on our show, do you, you, you sound very optimistic yeah. on the future. What is your, also the EPA challenges, yeah. you know, affecting the industry as a whole. I think, I think our two biggest hurdles in the future will be, the long-term effects of all this EPA stuff, because there are going to be long-term effects of that, and the long-term effects of manufacturers going away from combustion engines. 
you know um are we gonna go to silent drag races in 10 years i hope not you know what i mean um i don't think opposed to it not opposed to it but i don't think it's i don't think that lasts it's not there yet i don't think, there I, yet. I don't think I, well i don't think we're there yet and i don't think that that is going to ever be as exciting as a combustion engine drag racing period i don't care what they do i don't i don't think so maybe i'm wrong hopefully i'm wrong because maybe in 50 years that's just what it has to be right i don't think we're there yet i hope that it doesn't have any effects in the next 10 20 years um but those are two things i think those are the hurdles those are the things we need to be mindful of um i think from a promoter standpoint i've always said this but and it's easier said than done we're all guilty of making it difficult at some point or another i think promoters need to work together more um stop doing events on top of each other stop just doing all the dumb high school stuff that people do sometimes it happens like you said it's an ego-driven sport so is, you got ego-driven drivers and ego-driven promoters we shouldn't be though because we have a responsibility to i mean so like some of these promoters this is how, like this is how they make a living right so whether or not you love this sport if let's just say you just this is your job right you just fell into being a promoter because you're good at it you can give two shits about drag racing cool it's your responsibility to make sure that your industry is strong and healthy. You know what I mean? Um, we need to find more ways to work together. We need to make it, you know, we need to make this work. We need to make this last. We need to make it good. And it's our responsibility to not put it on the racer or the spectator to choose. Am I going to this, this event this event weekend or, or am I going to that event? Because all you're doing, I don't, I mean, somebody, may, somebody may be the better promoter or whatever, no matter what, you're hurting, you're hurting both parties. Both events will suffer. Just what it is. I know nothing about the sport, but I've read about it, watched about it. Golf with the PGA mm-hmm. and Live. Mm-hmm. Do you know much about that? I've heard a little bit about it. But I don't so know. high level, uh, there's going to be some golf fanatics who may watch this and be like, Brian knows nothing. I'll, I I don't know much. I don't I don't know anything about golf, but I do know the PGA has been around the longest, mm-hmm. the most prestigious and live a Saudi, I believe, or a Middle Eastern based uh, new tour came around, unlimited amount of money. Mm -hmm. So for them to start a new league, they basically wanted to bring, you know, bring a new light and uh, new take on golf and not be as classic as the Mm -hmm. PGA is. Mm -hmm. They started putting ridiculous amounts of money to PGA golfers like come play with us and we'll give you 20 times the amount of money that PGA would have paid you and the PGA in the first couple years that this was happening were like no way if you guys go over to them you can't even play for us anymore and just recently in the past couple months PGA and live now work together yeah so I think that's kind of the struggle that you know very relatable you know there is that competition between the two but like you said I think the PGA kind of they they I don't they know they, they they caved in or they manned up and just said hey, yeah. for the future of the sport this these guys help. could kind of just put us out of business because they have unlimited amount of money well so I guess my feeling is that or like my like my opinion of this kind of stuff is that we should never let so all right. There's, this is business for a lot of people. 
I love drag racing more than most people. That's how I feel, right? I love it. I race myself. Like, I promote on the track, race, sponsor events. I see it all, right? I've been in every seat. With that, what what needs to be done, in your opinion, for the future of import drag racing? Well, that's what I was going to get at is... I think for drag racing in general, which I'll answer your question too, but for drag racing in general, we should never let the business affect the, the product, right? So it's like, I shouldn't, you know, have my products made somewhere else for a lot less because that's a good business decision, but the products suffer. Does that make sense? Like, but how does that apply to race cars or racers? Well, no, that applies to drag racing because... We're letting the business get in the way when we do things like when people have events on top of each other or they're trying to steal sponsors from each other and just doing, you know, dumb stuff like that. So you're saying that's doing more damage to the you're sport? You're letting the business have a negative impact on the, the product, the sport. Um, import drag racing needs, which I've seen a little bit of it lately uh, with Chris Miller, but it needs, it needs more organization. It needs more events. And when you're saying it needs more events, although you're saying don't put events on top of no, each other, you we, got 52 weekends in a year. We need more events, but we need more events that are going to follow the same rule sets, the same structures, have the same, you know, so like. You shouldn't have to change your setup. Exactly. Like drag racing for imports is never going to grow if the only rule set that we pay attention to, for example, and this is how I feel, is. For years, World Cup finals, right? Because what happens is people build a car, don't pay any attention to a rule set in the import world. That's how I feel it happens. They build the car. Then it's World Cup finals time and they go looking through the rules like, man, what class do I fit? What class do I fit? What class do I fit? And they just buy a tech card where they fit or they buy a different turbo or they do something so that they can race at World Cup finals because there's, the, there's no structure. Domestic guys... They build an ultra street car. They build an X275 car. They build an LDR car. You get what I'm saying? They build That's a Pro 75 car. Yeah. They build the car around the rule set. We don't have that structure. So we need more events that are similar and more events that are willing to work together and follow the, the same rule sets and do things because that's what's going to that's what's going to build that's what's going to build the scene. That's what's going to make it grow. Like X275, for example, how many events do they have in a year? If I had to guess, maybe. 12, 15. That's a lot. And all across the U.S. or all? Yeah, all over the U.S., yeah. But you see, like, my point is that X275 is a rule set that John Sears and X275 created. But there are events that he has almost, not no involvement, but that he's not heavily involved with that use that rule set. Yeah. They don't change it so their buddy can run. That's the rules. Those are the rules. That's the rule set. People build cars, manufacturers build parts for those rules. That's what the import scene lacks. So me not having a familiarity with the X275 class and how it's governed, there's a set of rules. Whoever runs this class, do they have to get permission? And is the, uh, I guess, the governing or whoever, the tech, mm -hmm. is it from one sanctioning body or whoever promotes the event just texts it according to this rule book. So the drag radial stuff uh, has been getting 
a lot more organized in that sense. Um, so you have RTRA and you have the radial outlaws. Those are like the two, we'll call them sanctioning bodies for now, right? Um, so RTRA and radial outlaws, for the most part, follow the same rule sets. And they both have a point series. And they both have tech directors. Um, so like, you know, like, you're going to run on these rules. Your car is going to be teched by the same, you know, couple of guys or one guy at every event. And you you can run in this point series. All you have to do is show up, buy your tech card. I think Radial Outlaws, they have like a membership fee. But you win, at the end of the year, you can win like 20 grand for winning the points championship or something like that. But even that, that should be one, in my opinion, that should be one thing. It shouldn't even be two things. But as long as they both follow the same rule books and like one guy's just doing his couple races here and one guy's doing these couple races there, that's what grows the sport. Yeah, allows the same racer to race, like Correct. you said, but more races. But I guess what comes with that is that they know what's best. Like, not that they know what's best, but they know that it's good. when I show up to this race, like the rules are going to be enforced. If one guy goes really, really fast with a certain combination and it's not fair, they add weight to this guy. If one combination can't keep up, they take a little weight off. Like it's always being governed and it's always being managed and it's always being made. They're By doing whatever group. they can to be, to be competitive. And I think that goes back to what Wes always talks about in you, the side-by-side -side drag race. Correct. Nobody wants to go to, the, to watch racing when it's not competitive. Yeah. I want to be on the edge of my seat. Is that class growing? Which class? X275 or the RTR? I think radial stuff uh, goes, through, goes through its ups and downs. Right now, we're not in the radial season because it's so hot. It's like almost impossible to like give a good radial prep track. So you're not going to, there's not a lot going on. But, you know, once we get to October, October to March, those guys will be racing all the time. Are there new cars coming out constantly? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like I said, I mean, but it, you just need that structure. So I'm going to end this with a question that I don't think it has been addressed from you since it happened. This was back in May at a race at Virginia Motorsports Park. I think, Hugo, you remember reading about this. Another import racer, Sean Ramey, put up a post on his Facebook page that had a picture of you with like an X over it. I was it. happy he used a good picture. It made me. me want to read it because I was like, why is there a big X on top oh. of Vic? Yeah, that was a good picture. Man. <laughs> I have some bad pictures floating around. He used a good one. So I was happy about that. <laughs> so... The post was something in regards to a race both of you guys were competing at, um, and they had a transmission that I guess was sort of a gray area, mm -hmm. was legal, wasn't legal. And then at the race, I guess it was determined that the race, uh, the transmission was not legal anymore. So they had to put a different transmission in it. So they were upset, you know miscommunication or whatever it may be that that transmission was no longer allowed, even though they thought, or it was allowed before they got to the race. Um, and ultimately it came down to a race between your team and his team in which his team won against you. And then Sean said that he was sucker punched from behind that there was actually a physical altercation between the two camps. People got hurt. Or there was a fight. Was a he struggle. put up. He put up a yeah, pretty long post about yeah. this. Nothing. I, I even checked your page after, and a couple of days after, I was like, "What?" 
there's always two sides of the story. What do they say? There's the truth and there's, 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 no, there's three sides. There's three, oh, there's three sides, sides yeah. of the story. There's one side, my side, his side, and the and truth. Then the truth. There you go. That's what the, that's what they say. So, am I right to this that you never put up your side of the story? So, if somebody says that you robbed a bank and it's completely ludicrous, you're not going to give energy to that. You're not going to go online and be like, "Oh, I didn't rob a bank," because now you look like you're defending yourself. You look like you may have done something. So. I'm not going to defend myself for something that I didn't do, something that I'm innocent of. But I will, I will entertain the question. So a couple days before the event, which it's not my event. The event was an event at Virginia Motorsports Park. I just happened to make the phone call to ask if they would host our class. A couple days before, I get a text. I have the screenshots too if needed. I get a text. Is the sequential transmission legal? I said, the way that I interpret the rules it is not. However, not my call. John Sears is the tech director of this event. He is the man to ask. Can you ask him? Sure, no problem. So mind you, I don't know Sean Ramey. He's not the person asking me. Me and him have never met. We have never spoken. Send John Sears a text. He goes, the way that I interpret the rules, sequential transmission is not legal. I said, okay, so the official answer is it's not legal. Yes. Screenshotted it and replied to the person and sent them the screenshot from the tech director. Fast forward to the event, we get to the event, the person asking was asking for Sean Ramey. He got the answer that it wasn't legal and still decided to show up with the transmission he was told wasn't legal. He makes a run, I made a run, or the guy, Michael Manley's car, it's not even Sean Ramey's car, Michael Manley. Michael Manley makes a run, I make a run, it's qualifying, I'm at the scales. They're at the scales, like in front of me. It's a couple of us. We're all waiting because they're going back and forth with John Sears. And then they ask me, what's my opinion? Because the rule set, they use the same rule set from World Series of Pro Mod because that is what John Sears knows. That is what John Sears teched just two months before. You know, That was the rule set that the race was agreed to be run on. I'll put a disclaimer to this. I think what I said earlier is not verbatim for what Sean said. So I'll make this clear. What I said to start this conversation is not verbatim for what no, Sean yeah, put. It yeah, was kind yeah. of a summary of how I understood yeah, it. No. So we're just getting, you know, that was just to bring up the uh, topic of the conversation. Yeah, 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 for sure. And this is water under the bridge as far as I'm concerned. But I do think uh, I will address it just because, you know, you asked and I respect you guys. I'll answer. So anyways, I was asked my opinion. My opinion was, no, it's. I interpret it as it's not legal and it's not fair to me because as a racer in the class, if I thought it was legal and I thought it was an advantage, I would have one. This guy would have one. That guy would have one. We would all have them. Just what it is. So it's not fair that A, you asked and we're told it's not legal and you still showed up with it. And B, we should all have the biggest thing you could do. The best thing you could do for a class is we all need to have the same opportunity. Right? So we all need to have the exact same opportunities to win. That's why I don't believe that people should be able to have like custom one off parts in certain classes. Like we all need to be able to pick up the phone, buy the same stuff, and show up with the same stuff. If you can't afford it or you don't like it, whatever, but we should have that opportunity. They asked me my opinion. I said no. I went back to the pits, worked on my car, whatever. Fast forward, there's some talk that. He went on Facebook and made a post, said something. This is during the race? This is during the race. 
I heard that somebody was going to go over to address the post because he said something about people from Florida. Somebody from Florida was going to go, like, that knew him. Like, hey, man, what's this post about? We didn't say anything, whatever, because we didn't. Go over to his pit, try to talk to him. Again, I don't know him. My friend is talking to him. I'm not talking to him. They go back and forth, and he gets very loud, very aggressive, threatens us, tells us to get the fuck out of his pit. That's what he said. Um, at that point, you don't want to talk. You, you're threatening people. So we're going to leave, but, you know, we're all nice people. We're all family men and this, businessmen and all that. You threaten somebody. You're saying the next time I see you, if you, you know, like there's potential that you may do something to me. So we walk away and that's how it's left. Next day, we thrash all night on my car. We just so happened that the sem- or I think semifinal or one of the rounds, we're racing Michael Manley. I'm in my car. I do my thing. I go to make a run, hit the tree, car's running good, go to put in second gear, shift fork is bent, car won't come out of gear, Michael Manley goes on to win the race, my car's stuck in first gear, whatever. When the, the story that I got is that when, and this was you know, corroborated by several people that even were friends of his, uh, actually one of his guys said, this guy always talks shit and starts shit and we get you know stuck dealing with it. But anyhow, he said some really... He said some things that you don't say to, to anyone. Who did? Supposedly, Raimi. Um, again, I wasn't there. I don't know. He was in the car. I was in the car. Oh, yeah. I'm at the end of the track. And this is, they're saying this was happening at the line after Correct. you raced. I'm not there. Right. Words were exchanged. Because it's your team at the line and his team. Yeah. Next, they're literally next to each other. Correct. Yeah. Words were exchanged. People said things that they shouldn't say to people. There was a scruffle. I wouldn't call it a fight. That was it. Uh, Michael Manley, the owner of the car, came over to our pit afterwards, apologized on his behalf, said that it was unnecessary drama. Um, we shook hands. We talked. We were cool. Uh, I don't know why he made that post. The only thing I can come up with, because I don't know why I was the target, because I literally had the least amount of involvement. But I guess if you post a picture of you know, Ronald McDonald, and he wasn't at the race, or, you know, like nobody knows, like there's no significance behind, you know, his face. Maybe the post won't get any traction, but if you post my picture, maybe it will. I don't know. I didn't have any other interaction with him besides the one time I went over there and he threatened, he threatened all of us, told us all to leave his pit. Um, I haven't ever talked to him again ever since then. Um, I don't particularly remember what he looks like. Uh, I don't care. I don't hold a grudge. He lied. That's my opinion. Um, he fabricated that story, most of it. Um, the end it. of that story was that he won the race, but they were disqualified. Yes. So the the, tr- the track made the call, which, again, it's not my event, um, that it was going to be a double DQ um, because there was a fight, which to me, that is the right call. I respect, I respect that call. Had I won, I would have been pissed, rightfully so, the same way they probably were. Um, but it is, it's the right call to make. You can't go to somebody's event and start, you know, start a fight or have a fight. That's a very poor representation of the event, the sport, all of us. Like you should have ever happened at one of your events. No, it hasn't. And I, and truthfully before that happened, I, I don't know what I would have done in the, in that situation. But now I know that I would double DQ. Um, 
but I think that, that that's fair. You shouldn't be you shouldn't be allowed to to participate and potentially win money in a trophy and have a great time if you're putting my and event at risk. Up or, yeah, like yeah, if you're putting the, the event at risk and you're causing problems, you need to go home. Yeah, that's a that's a big one because like, well, could this go to trial because like we didn't do anything wrong and we were attacked so now it's his word versus their word and yeah like, but the whole oh, thing man. the whole thing is he said she said yeah yeah, yeah. but at That's the end of the day right? the facts the facts are involvement i was at the end of my the end of the track in my broken car <laughs> so like you can say whatever you want to say and you could try to spin it however you want i wasn't there right Man, that must have been very upsetting for uh, you. Said Michael Manley was his name. Yeah, the owner of the car. Yeah, that yeah. He he. Uh, if anything, he got the short end of the stick because he was going to go on to the finals. Right. And it was a ten thousand dollar race. Oh man. Yeah. So you think um, like moving forward? I, you already said it's water under the bridge. If in the future, you know, you guys will work together, or he'll come to one of your races, or vice versa. I wouldn't work no. with him unless he. Are you talking about Ramy or Manley? Yeah, uh, Ramy. I have no issues with Manley at all um and i don't i wouldn't say that i have an issue with Ramey. i don't because if i did then i would call him and we would address it and i'm not putting any energy into this like at all but i would not work with him unless he publicly apologized to me and i don't the little bit that i saw of him i don't think he's that guy i think he enjoys this kind of drama um that was one of the things he said to somebody when they called him about it yo why'd you post this guy's picture blah 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 like you shouldn't do that he said that you know he enjoys the drama, essentially. That's what it is, then. Um, but yeah, unless he publicly apologized to me, I wouldn't. Now, if I did something wrong, I would publicly apologize to him. But what I don't like is the lying. You know what I mean? Like, you just, you let's just be real. You shouldn't post my, my picture and then attack me for something I didn't do. Yeah. It was in my car. So that's how I feel about it. It's not good for the sport. It goes against everything that we're trying to do. Everything yeah. we've just talked about. I put a lot of time and effort and money into that class in particular. I put up, you know, I raised the money for that class to happen at that race. I'm the reason that that class had a $10,000 payout. I'm the reason that we raced at World Series of Pro Mod. I'm the one who pays 25000 in payouts at FL2K for this class. Like, I do a lot. I put a lot of energy into this class. The last thing I'm going to do is everything he accused me of doing. Right. I don't think there's any other promoter that actually races and competes at their own event. There are not many, but there are. There are. Yeah, like uh, Jim Halsey. They own Seesaw. Oh, that's true. He runs Pro Mod. He yeah. runs Pro Mod at his event. Does he run Yellow Bullet? Yeah, he races that yeah, event. He races Pro Mod at Yellow yeah. Bullet. Um, there's others. That's just the one that came to mind. Um, yeah, and I think that's. I mean, Jim Halsey is a testament of a purveyor, supporter, advocate of the sport. Yep. Who is you and know? He's a man of integrity, right? Like nobody questions him. He does it and nobody questions him. And like, I do it and I, I, I go through tech the same way everyone else does. If somebody wants to protest my car, they can come take it apart. Like I don't, like I do it all by the book and I don't follow any, I don't get any special treatment. I don't want any special treatment. I've, seen, I've seen that from you. I've seen that like. When I win, I want, I want my win. Legitimate. Yeah. And yeah. No, I want no, my win. Nobody said, I don't oh, want nah, any asterisks next to my win. Right, you know right, I mean? right. So. Now, I've seen I've seen guys come up to you and beg like yo I didn't make I didn't make my qualifying I've, I've I'm done, here now yeah, I've done thi you, I've done things to friends of mine I don't break the rules for them like it is what it is I've had friends like of mine like good friends of mine yo man I missed last qualifier I'm not on the ladder can I can I run behind 1050 index you can't they curse me out and they walk away 
but if they're really my friends, I've seen that firsthand. They walk so I can back later on, and they understand like rules I did, are rules. I did the right thing. Uh, like you said, rules are rules. And if I bend the rules for them, you I got to do it for everybody for else. Absolutely, hundred percent. You can't do it. That that actually answers uh, a good question of what is the biggest challenge of being a racer owner. What is the biggest challenge of being a racer, track owner, and event promoter? It's a lot of drama. Nah, honestly, it really isn't. The hardest part is, and this falls back on my staff, like I'm blessed that I have such a good staff that I can focus on my car, wrench on my car if needed, and race my car and not have to worry about the event because we're at a point where our staff does such a good job running the event and keeping the event running and running on time and track prep good and, you know, all of those things because... If not, I mean, I've had, when I first started, I had events where I would bring my car in the trailer, go to the event, unload the car, get so caught up in the event, I didn't make a single pass. But I'm fortunate enough that now I'm at a point where I'm able to race. I like you. All right, that's going to wrap us up for this podcast. Vic, we appreciate you again for coming out. If anybody wants to follow you social media, can you drop your handles? Yeah, so IP Vic on Instagram, induction performance for the shop, Bradenton Motorsports Park for the track, FL2K for the event. Um, appreciate you guys having me. Uh, this is like, I, I watch Drink Champs. This is like the Drink Champs of the automotive industry, and I wanted to do it. This is cool. This is the podcast that the automotive industry is talking about. Right. I'm Brian ESR, Hugo ESR. If you like this episode, like, comment, subscribe, and we'll see you on the next one.